Let's pray. Father David Platt, one of my favorite pastors on his feet today, has said that if the unborn is not human, then no justification for abortion is necessary. If the unborn is human, then no justification for abortion is adequate. And so I pray that, Lord, you would help us to feel the weight of eternity over these next moments. I know you're in this message. And so I ask that you would help me to get as small as possible behind this text and push it out to this congregation and that you would give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit to see where today's topic is all over John chapter 9. And if we would have eyes to see is in many other places of Scripture where we've never thought to look for it. So please come. Please come and empower the preaching of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to keep your Bibles open. I trust that you did open to the one verse that Caleb read for us. Um, We'll actually begin the sermon in John chapter 9 which is page 895 in the Red Bibles in the seats. Uh, begins on page 895 in those Red Bibles. John chapter 9, the sermon starts in verse 1. Um, let's begin with a definition of some terms that I think would serve us well over the next few moments together. Uh, the reason for this is that the mere mention of the word abortion, uh, especially from the pulpit, sets us on edge partially because of how politicized the issue has become, but it's also due in large part to a lack of clarity in terms. And this is not a topic where any amount of uncertainty or ambiguity can be tolerated. There is far too much on the line to be vague or unclear about what we mean when we say the word abortion. G.K. Chesterton once wrote that evil always takes advantage of ambiguity. That's true, and you know it's true. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the evil one asks, Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Evil does take advantage of ambiguity, and the truth commends itself by clear, distinct well-defined use, not abuse, of words. An abortion is an event that brings about the end of life for a child not yet born. An elective abortion, an elective abortion takes place when neither the life of the child nor the life of the mother are at risk but because of other contributing factors, whether coercion or confusion or something as simple as convenience, whether financial or emotional or mental or occupational or familial convenience. And when we speak of the national holocaust of abortion, this is typically what we, what we mean, we're talking about elective abortion, where 
In this country, for the last 41 years, it has been the law of this land that a baby's life may be snuffed out at virtually any point in a pregnancy for virtually any reason at all. 50 million babies since Roe versus Wade. 1.37 million unborn children a year. 3,700 boys and girls every day. One unborn child killed every 23 seconds. That's about 20 babies since the start of this sermon. And 80 more by the time that we're done here. 100 children will lose their lives during the time that it takes to preach this sermon. That's a holocaust. But this morning's application for Sanctity of Life Sunday is not about this sort of induced abortion, that is, elective abortion. Today I'd rather take up a topic that I believe uh, the Word of God would have us to focus on. It's another sort of induced abortion, and that would be eugenic abortion. Eugenic abortion is a holocaust inside of a holocaust. And nothing but the grace of God in the gospel of Christ will change that. Eugenic abortion is a holocaust inside of a greater holocaust, and there is nothing, there is nothing in the world but the grace of God and the gospel of Christ that will change it. A brief word about eugenics in America. The term eugenics, it's a term that's on the skids today. It's not used very often. It used to be used a lot. It was first coined by an Englishman named Francis J. Galton. Galton was born in 1822, and he died in 1911. He was the half-cousin of Charles Darwin, who was the author of Origin of Species. Galton read Darwin's work with great interest, and just over two decades after the publication of Darwin's theory, Galton, not a scientist, a mathematician, developed a pseudoscience that he termed eugenics. It was his word. It's the, it's the, com- it's the combining of two different Greek words, uh, euge, which means birth or, or born, and then genatas. I'm sorry, euge, which is a good or well, and then genatas, which means born or birth. So eugenics means well-born. Good birth. Taking Darwin's fledgling theory as a starting point, Galton believed that humanity not only had the ability, but the responsibility to breed out certain characteristics from its race. Undesirable physical features, Galton imagined possibly mental or emotional incapacities. He thought even maybe entire ethnicities. By the turn of the 20th century, Eugenics was a quickly growing discipline, especially here in America. In his book, War Against the Weak, Edwin Black writes, The eugenics movement was led by America's finest universities, most reputable scientists, most trusted and charitable organizations, most revered corporate foundations, the Carnegie Institution, the Rockefeller Foundation, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, the American Medical Association, and a sweeping array of government agencies. And Black says this, 
Throughout the first decades of the 20th century, hundreds of thousands of Americans were not permitted to continue their families by reproducing, but were forcibly sterilized and committed to institutions where they died in great numbers. I learned that uh, sterilization laws were passed in this state inside of 100 years ago. 2,300 victims in Minnesota alone between the years of 1928 and 1963. Far and away, uh, the most horrifying indictment of the American eugenics movement came in the years 1925 and 1926 when a man named Adolf Hitler released the first of two volumes in his autobiography named Mein Kampf, which means my struggle. Over and over, Hitler thrilled at the work of the pseudoscience of eugenics that was happening here in the States. Inside of a decade, Hitler would rise to power as the Chancellor of Germany and begin to apply the principles of eugenics on a previously unimagined and unprecedented scale. In 1934, the Richmond Times Dispatch newspaper in the state of Virginia quoted one American eugenicist as saying, quote, the Germans are beating us at our own game. 1934. Now, the reason I mention this movement and this book, uh, War on the Week by Edwin Black, is that it was written by a man, Edwin Black, who is a staunch advocate of the pro-choice movement today. Edwin Black is an award-winning, best-selling author and investigative journalist. The man does Pulitzer Prize-level work. And his book on the American eugenics movement contains the following disclaimer. Please listen closely. I hope this book's contents will not be misused or quoted out of context by special interests. Opponents of a woman's right to choose could easily seize upon Margaret Sanger's eugenic rhetoric to discredit the admirable, admirable work of Planned Parenthood today. For those who don't know that name, Margaret Sanger, who died in 1966, is the founder of Planned Parenthood, a passionate eugenicist. Planned Parenthood is the single largest provider and promoter of abortion in this nation today. Eugenic abortion is an elective abortion of a child who may be at risk for physical or mental disability. For example, Down syndrome. Down's occurs in roughly one of every 700 pregnancies. Currently in this nation, although the statistics are in flux, some statistics, a very common statistic, is that nine out of 10 Down's children are aborted. Another study I read said that the total population of Downs persons in the U.S. has been reduced to 400,000 in a previous generation to just over 250,000 this past year. Overall population reduction of 40% in America. And that is due to the dramatic presence of eugenic abortion. Eugenic abortion is a holocaust within a holocaust in this nation, 
and nothing but the gospel will change that. So, now we need to move to our Bibles and hear that gospel. Follow along with me as I read John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or that his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. He said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back. Seeing. Point number one. God knits babies with disabilities together in the womb so that the work of God may become visible in them. God knits babies with disabilities together in the womb so that the work of God may become visible in them. In verse 1, Jesus settles his gaze on a man blind from birth. As his disciples ask him a question that we often seize on to um, make light of how badly the the disciples misunderstood him, but if their question is based upon Jesus' previous healing at Bethesda, Their question is totally understandable. Recall that back in chapter 5, some weeks ago in our church, that uh, Jesus healed a man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. You remember that? And afterward, in John chapter 5, verse 14, John writes, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Clearly, his disciples were listening to them, to him. And they're making a connection between suffering and sinning that Jesus himself established back in chapter 5. But they've jumped to a conclusion. They've jumped to a conclusion that was ill-advised. Jesus rejects their assertion. What is clear about verse 3, especially though, is that this blindness falls within the purview of God's designs for this baby. God's design for this man. In other words, when the disciples ask, whose fault is this blindness? Is it this man's or his parents? Jesus says, neither one. This blindness is God's responsibility. This is God's doing. This man was born blind, and he was born blind on the watch of Almighty God. Just in case you think I'm reading too much into this text... You need to hear the way that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ clearly understands his role with reference to disability in birth. Remember what God says to Moses at the burning bush? If you have our Bible reading plan, you read it this morning in devotions on the website. Exodus chapter 4 verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing 
or blind, is it not I, the Lord? This blindness is so that the works of God may be displayed in him. There's design in this disability, as there is design in all disability. I mean, are the words of Psalm 139 any less true of a child who is developmentally disabled? Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed from me, when as yet there were none of them. Of course those verses are true of a child with disability. Do you know what God loves that we tend to despise? What God cherishes that we minimize? Weakness. Weakness. But 2 Corinthians 11.30 says that we ought to boast in the things that show our weakness. Because 2 Corinthians 12.9 says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And so 2 Corinthians 12.10 encourages us to be content with weakness. And if the power of God is shown anywhere in John's gospel, it is shown in the healing of this man's blindness. The work of God became visible in this man. So one reason why God creates children with disabilities is so that he can heal them. That's one way he displays his work in them. Another reason, it's often the most common reason, is so that he can display his work in the people around the child that has been born with the disability. That's the message, of course, of the Michael Kelly Blanchard song, Danny's Downs. Individuals with special needs call forth our love. And don't you know it? Gospel truth, our patience and our kindness, and our gentleness in a way that other people don't require. That's the work of God, too. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God has very, very good designs in disability. Eugenic abortion is an offense and affront to the glory of God on so many levels the unparalleled arrogance of that adjective eugenic to describe the killing of a special needs baby. God knits babies together with disabilities in the womb so that the work of God may become visible in them. Second point today. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is invisible to those who are perishing. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is invisible to those who are perishing. Let's listen to the reaction of this man's neighbors, his parents, and his religious leaders as I read beginning in verse 8, most of the rest of the text. 
the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. And they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Then they brought to the Pharisees the man who had, been formerly, had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked, again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said of him, he is of age. Ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered him, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners, and if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning, the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out of the synagogue. Verse 39, Jesus responds, for judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that I say, that you say we see, your guilt remains. There's irony all over this passage, isn't there? The one who was blind can now see. Those who can see are blind. John is a brilliant arranger of material, maybe the best editor in the New Testament. 
Let's remember the broader context of this account. All of this is taking place during the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's sometimes called. The whole section began back in chapter 7, verse 1, same section, where the Bible says that the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. And some time ago, Seth gave us some background to this feast and why it was celebrated. Uh, For instance, Seth explained to us that the prominence of water in this feast makes a lot of sense of what Jesus says about himself in John 7, 37, where Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is using language they can all appreciate, and he continues to do so throughout the Gospel of John. Another place is right here in chapters 8 and 9. In his book, The Seven Signs, a commentary on the seven signs that Jesus gives in John's Gospel, author Anthony Salvegio explains... During each night of the Feast of Booths, four giant fire bowls, each containing approximately 120 logs, were set on fire to illuminate Jerusalem. These are in the days before the light bulb, okay? In addition, Jewish men danced each night with blazing torches in their hands. Can you picture it? Now look with me at fresh eyes. At the scripture that Caleb read for us a few moments ago, John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You picture it? Jerusalem is ablaze with fire. And Jesus steps up and says again in John chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I am in this world, I am the light of the world. And to drive the message home, he heals a blind man and gives him sight. (laughs) And yet, even though a man at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Flaming Torches, moves from blindness to sight, even though that happens... We see the reaction of all these people. The neighbors, his folks, the Pharisees, none of them come to confidently see what this man sees. And you know why? Because the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, is invisible to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the apostle Paul writes, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world, lowercase g, God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends of Mount Free Church, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is invisible to those who are perishing. Listen to an excerpt from the national website of Planned Parenthood who have clinics scattered across the Twin Cities that provide abortion referral and one in St. Paul that provides abortion services. The website says, and I quote, abortion is a safe way to end pregnancy. 
Women have abortions because they care about themselves and their families and their future families. Abortion is a safe way, and serious complications are rare. But the risk of your health increases the longer your pregnancy continues. Abortions performed later in pregnancy may be complicated, but are still safer than labor and childbirth. So, even though it's important to take the time that you need to make a decision that's best for you, it is important that you understand there may be greater health risks later in pregnancy, so you may not want to wait too long. Serious long-term emotional problems after abortion are about as uncommon as they are after giving birth. Ultimately, most women feel relief after an abortion. Close quote. That's drawn word for word from the Planned Parenthood website. Why do they talk that way? Because they're blind. They can't see. They may not want to see, but the reality is they cannot see because Satan has blinded them. They are skeptical like the neighbors in this text. They are afraid like the parents in this text. They think they see like the Pharisees in this text. But the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is invisible. Isn't it ironic that abortion providers are the ones who are perishing? Final point today. The work of God to which every person is called is to believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. The work of God to which every person is called is to believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. Now, it seems to me that true to form in John's gospel, uh, there is a miracle that happens, but there is also a greater miracle that happens. There is a miraculous sign that is impressive, but there is an even more remarkable sign of faith that follows. Look with me at verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered him, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The goal of the gospel, according to John, is stated in John 20, verse 31, that all who read what is written may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing might have life in his name. That you may believe. And no less than three times in four verses, did you catch it here? That word appears. So verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Why did the Lord heal the eyes of this man's head? You know why? Because he was going after the eyes of his heart. Why did God create a baby blind from birth? 
so that the work of God may be displayed in him, of course. A miracle? Is that the work of God? Well, partly. In this situation, it was. It's sign number six. We don't want to miss it. We've only got one more sign, and that's coming up with Lazarus in a couple of weeks. This is a big sign, big miracle, but it was not the greatest miracle. It's not the healing of this man's physical eyes that was the greatest miracle. It's the healing of his spiritual eyes. Isn't it interesting? After he's already healed, this healing happens. He's cast out of the synagogue. Verse 35, favorite verse in the chapter for me. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, how do you think he said it to him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? What's more important than getting your sufferings healed? Getting your sins forgiven. What's the work of God? Is it signs and wonders? It's not the greatest work that he or we can be about. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, we see an exchange between the crowds and Jesus that contains the whole burden of John's gospel. Listen to John 6, 28 and 29. They, the crowd, said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe. You believe in him whom he has sent. So why did God make this man blind from birth? Why does he make anyone blind from birth? God knits babies with disabilities together in the womb so that the work of God may become visible in them. And whether their disability is healed in this life or the next, the work of God to which every person is called is to believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. Why is eugenic abortion a profound error? Because all persons are invited to believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. If you are with us today and have had or have consented to or are considering an elective abortion of any kind, In this moment, believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. If you walked in here believing in Jesus and you still wrestle with consequences about the pain of a past abortion, then you need to lean in to the second half of John 20, verse 31. There's life in his name. There's redemption in his name. Jesus designed faith for life. As we're going to learn in John chapter 10, verse 10, next week, Jesus came that you, you might have life and have it abundantly. God designs all things for our good and for his glory, all things. His indwelling spirit equips you with power over sin. Jesus' death on the cross cancels the debt of sin that you owe 
every debt. And one day he's coming back and he promises to separate you from sin's very presence. Eugenic abortion is a holocaust within a holocaust and nothing but the grace of God and the gospel of Christ will change it. God knits babies with disabilities together in the womb so that the work of God may become visible in them. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is invisible to those who are perishing. And the work that every person is called, every person in this room, to believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. May we be in a church where all of our sins and all of our sufferings are redeemed. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, if we are thinking anywhere in the ballpark of justly, we weep for our nation. And for our neighbors who don't see the light, we are grateful that you have the power to remove the veil that hangs over everyone's spiritual eyes and we pray that you would do that we pray that you would lift the curtain on this horrific holocaust we pray father that just as the life expectancy of for example downs persons has increased dramatically over the years that the birth expectancy would increase once again that they wouldn't be so rare to find they're already rare And they're so beautiful. Pray, Father, that we would be a church rich in soul care. And we would look at the cross on which the Prince of Glory died, suffered for all of our sins, all of our sins. Father, may no one walk away without knowing that they are loved and cared for and that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.